Mark Bellow is an attorney and civil justice advocate who has over 40 years of courtroom experience, which includes working high profile cases. He was one of the attorneys who sued the Catholic Church for sexual abuse, and that journey led him to writing the book Betrayal of Faith. His passion for justice comes through his writing style. Bellow has penned several books, including the Zachary Blake Legal Thriller series. He also co-hosts the podcast Justice Counts. Please welcome Mark. Well, welcome, Mark. <laughs> Hi, Debbie. Thank you. So I want to know, did you grow up in Detroit? And what was it like for you when you grew up? Well, I had a wonderful childhood. Yes, I grew up in Detroit. Wonderful parents. I had a brother and a sister. We lived in a in a very friendly neighborhood. It, it the whole concept of neighborhood was you could do if you did a poster child for neighborhood, it would be where I grew up. So, I I must say I had a very good experience growing up. Do you remember when you fell in love with the law? Fell in love with the law. You can't be in it for 40 years and not love I, it. I'm going to answer that two different ways. I, My parents are Jewish, as am I. My mother was very big on wanting her children to be professionals, wanting us to get an education. My father, his favorite line was always an education. A good education is a free ticket to success. I don't know how free it was. It was a very expensive ticket to success, but that was his favorite line. So education was a big component of, of my upbringing. My brother and sister didn't go that route. They graduated college, but they never went on beyond a four-year degree. And I was the middle child, and I decided I was going to be the one that made my parents proud. I tried to, my mother wanted me to be a doctor, the whole Jewish mother and doctor sy syndrome. <laughs> and then I took a chemistry class and a math class, and that was the end of my wanting to become a doctor. That's when I turned to the law. I was in love with the idea of going further than college, becoming a professional, and if I couldn't be my son the doctor, I'd be my son the lawyer. <laughs> in terms of loving the law or loving, quote, a lawyer, it was reading To Kill a Mockingbird mm. and, and seeing the movie. And if you think about it, lawyers are the butt of jokes. <laughs> lawyers are people you can't trust. Lawyers are the guys that, cut, you corner, need one. that cut corners and, and violate ethics rules until you need one. You're right. It's an unfair stereotype. But the one thing I will say, if you think about To Kill a Mockingbird, and I'm not going to say I'm a student of the book. If you, were, if you remember the book well, my favorite line in the book and the movie is stand up, your father's passing. Here's a lawyer who just lost the biggest case of his career. He's walking out of court, and the people in the balcony who weren't allowed to sit in the lower level because they were black, felt that the job he did was so courageous and so wonderful that he deserved essentially the equivalent of a standing ovation. Hmm. I can't think of another movie or another book that holds lawyers 
in with that kind of reverence. Yeah. And that book and that movie solidified my wanting to become a lawyer. It must have been quite a journey through that suing the Catholic Church. Tell us what you can about that experience. And I'm sure it was a pretty complicated process. And how did it resolve? And how many roadblocks did you face? Well, roadblock tons. It resolved in, during a mediation process. We hired a private judge who had just retired to essentially bring the two sides together. For such a contentious piece of litigation, it had a very quiet resolution. Mm. Surprise, surprising. It, we were very successful. It was done without a lot of blue, if, the, if that's still a word. As to the case itself, the way I got the case was the way most lawyers get cases. It was referred by another client. Hmm. I had no idea what I was getting into. I had no idea how contentious the litigation would be. I had no idea how deceptive and unethical, not the lawyers, but the hmm. church would behave. I would hmm. expect that the church would be just as appalled, just as offended, just as disgusted by such behavior. And instead, they covered it up, hid the truth, hid prior incidents, moved church priests from place to place to hide their propensities for pedophilia and made it very difficult for us. The book, when I wrote it, I intended it to be a nonfiction account of what handling such a case was like. I wanted to basically help other lawyers uh, handle such cases. But my work and my family got in the way. I got too busy to write a book like that. But it was always something I wanted to do. It was like a bucket list item. And as the years went by, I decided I can really write a compelling account if I write fiction instead of fact. So I created an embellished version and wrote fiction. And I created an organization called The Coalition. And The Coalition is a super secret CIA type organization within the church that handles these kinds of things, covers them up, and gets rid of them by, quote, any means possible. And the book makes it very clear that there's nothing they won't do to cover up these kinds of crimes. I don't think that's true of the Catholic Church, but the fictional church that I created in the book would definitely do anything to silence victims mm. and to prevent the public and future lawyers from knowing that this particular predator was capable of this kind of conduct. So that's what the book was about. Written 40 years after the case. And yet it, it feels like a lot of movie plots we see out there. Well, you know, that's kind of... Including the, the Godfather 3. If you think about this, I mean, here I am with very little hair. <laughs> and and very gray and and i'm a young man i'm in my 30s and i get handed this case i handle it and it was contentious and difficult and i didn't like the way they behaved but if you'd have asked me in 1980 do i think that people would still be litigating this issue in 2022 
Would the church still be behaving this way? Would they not have learned their lesson? I would have told you you were crazy. But instead, they've paid billions of dollars to people like me and my clients over a 40-something year period, and even longer than that, and have still not learned their lesson. It, it just, it's mind-blowing to me. Does it sometimes feel like a hopeless battle when you, when you have cases like that, that you might win, but just that process makes it really souring. I think the better way to say that is the battles are not hopeless. You can absolutely and most often do win the battles. The problem is it's an endless war. The war never stops because they never correct their behavior. That's what's so bizarre to me. You're not some evil gun manufacturer. You're the church. What is your mission as a caring, charitable, giving religious community to cover up crimes, to enable predators? It's mind-boggling. I just can't believe it. I've been called the Jewish guy that picks on the church. And that's not it at all. If a rabbi did this, I promise you, the synagogue would make sure he was not a rabbi anymore and make sure he had no involvement with children anymore. Yeah. The church doesn't do that. And that's why I'm such a, quote, enemy, if you want to call me that. Well, and they do have a lot of money. They've got probably more money than any other entity on the planet. So they can cover, you know, they can pay out cases left, right, and center. It's like Starbucks money for them. (laughs) If you're a Catholic person, would you donate to the Catholic Church? So your money covering up the crimes of predators? Why would you do that? I know. It it doesn't make sense. That's mind-blowing to me. (laughs) So what is the best part about being a lawyer helping people getting justice in situations where injustice is so easy without there are a lot of predators out there and when i say predator you know a predator priest is a pedophile who abuses children that's about as bad as you can get but if you think about the kinds of predators out there they're not all criminals Some of them do what they do legally. Think about pharmaceutical companies who make bad drugs and cover up like Purdue Pharma did and cover up what they do. Think about the tobacco industry for years, knowing that nicotine was addictive and caused cancer and covered that up. Think about other bad drugs. Think about bad products where a toy manufacturer makes a toy that is dangerous. Uh, Cars, the Pinto and the problem with the rear end uh, bursting into flames uh, was covered up. Not necessarily legal. Nobody goes to jail, right? But uh, it is lawyers, above my pay grade, by the way. I had a good career, and I was a good lawyer. But there are guys out there that have done a fantastic job of bringing these evil corporations to their knees and getting justice for multiple clients in class action litigation and and individual cases. 
friend of mine handled the Larry Nasser cases. Michigan State covered those up. The Olympic Committee covered those up. And they exposed those cover-ups. So case after case after case of bad conduct in corporate or institutional America, let's call it, or Canada for that matter. You don't hear about it in Canada like you do in the, in the States. It's just what you'd like as a lawyer. Uh, I think I'm over answering your question, but okay. what you'd like as a lawyer is to see people behave better and maybe I wouldn't be so successful. So what? At least we'd have a, at <laughs> yeah. least we'd have a better society. That's a great answer. <laughs> if we're making money as a lawyer, it's because somebody's doing something bad, right? Yeah, yeah. That's a good point. (laughs) (laughs) It's because too many people are doing something bad. I handled simple auto accidents and stuff like that, too. But what I'm getting at is there's just so much bad conduct. The whole Second Amendment argument, I wrote a book about that. And the way gun manufacturers skirt the law and shout Second Amendment all the time so they can sell dangerous weapons that we don't need. Yeah. I don't need to tell a Canadian that. You think we're crazy. I know that. I know we do. And I Not do just too. Canada, I'm afraid. I, this, I think the rest obsession, of the world. But this obsession with guns just blows my mind. I, yeah. If you want to say we have a Second Amendment, that we have the right to bear arms, fine. If I'm a student of the Constitution, and I am, and I believe in the Constitution as a broad, all-inclusive document, This Constitution, for instance, guarantees the right to trial. The Constitution, for instance, guarantees a civil trial. So I believe that tort reform, if you know what that is, violates the Seventh Amendment of the Constitution. If I'm a Seventh Amendment advocate, and I am, if I'm a Sixth Amendment advocate, if I am, and I am, if I'm a First Amendment advocate, and I am, I have to say we have a Second Amendment. We have a right to bear arms. But the Second Amendment doesn't say we have a right to bear assault rifles. Yeah, AK-47. It doesn't say we're entitled to, to have a, a 90, you know, bullet magazine. In fact, I don't know if you know this, the Second Amendment was passed before the bullet was invented. Really? We shot pellets, muskets. Wow. The bullet wasn't invented until 70 years later. And usually the amendments mean you update the laws so that they evolve with the society. The evolution but, of the, the evolution yeah. of Second Amendment law, though, has been this expansive view of what it says. Yeah. Hands it's off good. my guns. Hands off what guns? Yeah. What they were contemplating, if you're familiar with the Second Amendment, was... If you take guns away from the people and the government becomes oppressive, the people have no weapon to fight the government with. Therefore, the Second Amendment. It was written for the citizens to rise up against an oppressive government if it happened. That's what the purpose of the Second Amendment is. So now everybody's taking that literally. Now all of a sudden it's... I can own anything I want. You know, I guess yeah. I can have a nuke in my basement. Apparently, yeah. Yeah. It doesn't make sense. The the book, by the way, is Betrayal High. It's about a high school shooting. Ah, okay. And an evil gun manufacturer. Wow. So let's get to the writing. So was it hard when you first started writing? 
I mean, it took you a while to finish that first book because of life. <laughs> but was it hard to write fiction? Is your process the same with every book or does it vary from book to book? Well, that's been an interesting experience. It, it does vary from book to book for sure. The first book, as you mentioned, took a long time, or as I mentioned, and most of the reason for that was life, as I indicated. A practice, children, then grandchildren. The book was always there in my mind. Anyway, I'd never written a book, so it was an issue. Uh, Just sit down and do it. I wasn't sure I could. So the first thing that happened once I retired was I sat down and started to write in earnest a book that I had started and and put down and started and put down several times in my earlier days. Once I wrote it, I thought I was a one-and-done author. I thought, you know, okay, I fulfilled my bucket list. I'm happy with what I wrote. It's a good book. I bet I, I need to rewrite it, by the way. It, it can be better. Now that, I, now that I've written eight books. So you are I, a writer. I, need, I look back at number one and I say, you know, as much as people have liked the book, it can be written better than it, than it is. All of our books. I've been, I'll been, think I, that well, about you know, every it, book. It's funny. I, I've been playing with a screenplay and I've taken the book and I've started to write a screenplay. Good. And I look at some dialogue and I say, nobody would say it like that. <laughs> so I've rewritten it in screenplay form and I think I'm going to take the screenplay and rewrite the novel. But be that Excellent. as it may, I write this book. It's about a case that I handled. I'm very satisfied with it. It's a compelling novel. Your audience will love it. I'm one and done. I don't need to write another book. I don't care to write another book. And then the 2016 election came along. I don't know how political your show is, and I don't want to really get into politics, but it it suffices to say that I'm not a Donald Trump fan. And <laughs> You said the and, word. Hear me out, because I want to make the point about my (laughs) second book. What I didn't like about him at the time, 2016, was what he was saying, what his rhetoric was, especially two things that bothered me the most. I couldn't figure out why people did. (laughs) Well, two things bothered me the most, aside from it seemed to be all about him rather than all about the people, which is a whole second discussion, but I didn't like the wall because I think we should be welcome and warm and welcoming rather than, you know, selfish the way he was describing. We want people from Norway and Denmark. We don't want people from Mexico. That's stuff like that. And again, as a Jewish person, it sounds like Hitler. We don't want, we don't, we want Christians, not Jews. And lo and behold. <laughs> so so that's how it that's how it played on me. That was yeah. one. Two, me too. That's how two, it played on me. Two, he wanted to ban all Muslims. While Jews have had their battles with Muslims, it doesn't mean that I stereotype anybody or believe that all Muslims deserve some kind of punishment. Fundamentalist terrorists who bring down New York buildings, yeah, those guys deserve to be punished. But I don't blame some peaceful neighbor of mine for what Osama bin Laden did. No. And he did. He wanted to ban an entire religious group of people. So I said to myself, and it's a long way to answer your question, but 
you asked me about the process of writing a book. I said to myself, what would the country look like if a bigot became president of the United States? That was my premise. When did and you I, start and, writing it? And I wrote a book called Betrayal of Justice. But was that at the start of the presidency? I wrote it in June. I started it in June and finished it in October. That's how quickly, uh, that's how angry I was about the rhetoric. And it turned I, out I, to be I, true. I, I didn't expect him to win. <laughs> and it turned out to be true. All right. So I write this book and lo and behold, oh. he wins. And I get attacked on social media <laughs> for doing a hit job on Trump. Yeah. How dare you? And my response was, well, if you check the time period, I wrote a book about a fictional president who wanted to do a couple of bad things and others, I certainly imitated the positions he took, but he became president two months later, three months later. He had an opportunity to be a different president than he campaigned oh, yeah. to be, and he chose to be who he is. So my response to those who criticized my book as a, quote, hit job was, that he imitated my guy, not the other way around. <laughs> True, right? Right? <laughs> that is an incredible story because the timing, right? It's like you had premonition. <laughs> Mind you, we all did. We all did. I mean, here in Canada, we're connected to the U.S., so anything that happens in the U.S. Do you know, uh, do you, trickles do you know, up to up to us, right? When, so, when someone dies, Jew, Jews sit shiva. Have you heard that term? Yeah, yeah. There's a, a seven-day period of mourning. Yes. Until the next Sabbath. Oh, we had a four-year period of mourning up here. <laughs> well, you have that too, but there's a specific family gathering, sort yeah. of like a wake, sort of like a wake. Yeah. But it's seven days. You needed that for the U.S. All right. So what I like to say is I sat shiva for four years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did too. Well, we still are in a way. But the the point I was it was yeah. a long way to make a, make a point. One book takes almost 40 years. The other one takes three months. Yeah, yeah. That's how it uh, works. <laughs> once that happened, once I wrote a book about something, even though I experienced the election, it was pure fiction to write what I wrote. It, it was clear to me that I could write a compelling novel about topics in the news, for lack oh. of a better way to say it. Yeah. So I started writing book after book after book about social justice issues that were happening in America. And that's the remainder of my work has been essentially that a school shooting, a police officer shooting an innocent black man in a traffic stop, white supremacy and the thin blue wall and policing the me too movement mm -hmm. and the Supreme court, I, a, a, a hit job. <laughs> so in other words, we all read your books before to understand what's going to happen. <laughs> Maybe, or, or understand what, what's happened. To your point, the main focus of the books is to offer sensible, legal solutions using the justice system mm -hmm. to solve yeah. these problems. Yeah. I don't just present a problem. I actually use the justice system to solve it. And my right. protagonist, Zachary Blake, is the main problem solver. So it's really convenient that you're a lawyer because you can check your books for red flags. <laughs> That's true. 
<laughs> that might get you into trouble later, right? <laughs> I'm amazed that I don't know how many people write legal thrillers who aren't lawyers. I think most of them are, frankly, but yeah, I think they are. I think it would be very difficult to write the law if you didn't know the law. One thing about writing the law that bugs me a bit is you watch a program or you read a book and what you're reading or seeing is baloney. It would never happen. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, they got us up it for entertainment value, right? Yeah, I'm not suggesting that you can't skirt the law a little bit to, to be entertaining, but some of it is just such nonsense. I mean, you know, <laughs> we all grew up on Perry Mason and yeah, the idea yeah. the idea that he puts a person on the stand and browbeats them into confessing, it's a shock to everybody. Practicing law isn't like that. When you go into a trial, you pretty much know almost exactly how that trial is going to go who the witnesses are, what they're going to say, what you're going to ask them, what the judge is going to allow. There's no sh like shocking surprises <laughs> in a trial, whether it's criminal or civil. Yeah. So what that just brings me to ask you, I'm kind of curious with that in mind, what is your favorite TV series, legal TV series or series, streaming series? I just wrote a a newsletter post, my 13 favorite oh, okay. fictional characters. If you go to my website, I think, it, no, I don't know. Uh, well, there's a newsletter out there somewhere. <laughs> um, <laughs> if you find I'll, it all, I'll, I'll, I'll add I'll, it to I'll, the... I'll, 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 well, I write it on Substack. Substack is okay. a... Uh, are you yes. familiar with Substack? I am. I'm on there too. Okay. Yes. Well, so, it, it, you, then you'll find it. I don't know where Substack sends my subscribers get the newsletter. Yeah, yeah. But it's not necessarily on my website, per se. Right. So I, I don't know. But anyway. What I'll do is I'll find that link and I'll add it to the description to this video. Thanks. I appreciate it. Yes. Because but, but I want to your, know. <laughs> the answer to your question about series, it, it depends on the series. If you're talking about television series, I used to love The Practice and Boston oh. Legal. Those were my favorite legal shows. L.A. Law before that, but. Yeah, those were better. Yeah, Once I liked L.A. Law a lot until I until those two came along. Many people don't remember that Alan Shore started on the practice. Boston okay. Legal was Boston Legal was a spinoff of the practice. Very few mm -hmm. people remember that that James Bader introduced that character yeah. on the practice, not on Boston Legal. What I really love is the limited series. The Netflix, Prime, App, those kinds of things. Yes. That's what started me writing a screenplay of my oh, books cool. because you can create, you know, seven, eight uh, episode series and really have people get to know one case and one character. For that, I really like the Goliath series on, I think it was Prime. With Billy Bob Thornton. I don't Liz love Clark. Billy Bob Thornton, but I love that program. It's very much like what the Zachary Blake legal thriller series is like. Okay. It takes a particular issue and a particular case and does a deep dive into it. And one lawyer, and hence the word Goliath, one, one David can take on Goliath and bring them to their knees like we discussed earlier. It was an outstanding, outstanding limited series. 
So if you had one social issue that you had to hang or you had to choose to hang your hat on, what would it be? Equality. I wish we would stop treating each other the way we do. I wish we would celebrate our differences rather than fight over them. I believe that those things that divide us could easily be used to be to become those things that unite us. To me, we should celebrate our differences, not fight over them. That's the cause of my life. Uh, that's that's essentially what I write about. Who inspires you? Well, lots of people inspire me. It's not just one person. Gandhi, Martin Luther King, people who had the guts to stand up for not that they weren't flawed people, they were. Yeah. But stand up for a, whether it be a religion or a race, and essentially say me too. I mean, it's there, there's a whole different movement around me too. But, you know, I, we're here too. We have the same rights as you. We're yeah. human. Please recognize us as being human and being that we have. You know, again, we mentioned, I said, can you believe that we're still talking about clergy abuse? Yeah. 60 years after my case, or it's not 60 years, but 60 years after the first case I saw, that they're still behaving that way. And I feel that way about human rights. Here we are in 2022. We're mm -hmm. an advanced society. And this person doesn't deserve the same rights and benefits as that person. That, that makes no sense to me. I don't understand it. I'm not a socialist. I do believe that there should be a minimum level of subsistence. There shouldn't be a person sitting on a street corner with a backpack in dirty clothing and a cup asking for money. Yeah. That should be a problem we, sh we should be able to resolve in 2022. And as another great author, Margaret Atwood, once said, The Handmaid's tale was not meant to be a playbook <laughs> what a what a terrific book oh i'm watching the series now and i'm scared out of my mind oh, <laughs> because it's happening what what's what season are you on i'm on i think i'm on season the end of season two so i just oh, started just, watching it just so. wait you haven't seen anything yet oh i know i know i'm just like <laughs> it, it, I, it Fast is terrific. Stock up I, on beer. <laughs> I'm starting to wonder in season five, I think it is. I'm starting to wonder if the show has jumped the shark or or if I'm just enough already. Yeah. Well, the <laughs> oh, thing is, oh, oh from, my god, we're seeing it happen. Well, you know what's funny? It, it's almost like Star Wars. Yeah. It, it, well, I don't want to ruin it for you, but it, <laughs> it, the good guys are making a comeback. Let's put it that way. Oh, yeah. Well, you can kind of see that sprinkling in that yeah, at you, the end you, of season two. You, it, it's, I, yeah. I don't want to ruin it for you because it's, yeah. it's, ter no, it's terrific. Okay. Okay. It's terrific. It's just terrific. So then it might be a good playbook. <laughs> she's so good. And she's so good at, in the role, too. Oh, my gosh. She's amazing. She's and, amazing. and so are the bad guys. All of them. You, you really hate them, don't you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she was like, really? <laughs> Talk about the Second Amendment. They make you want to I know. They make well, you want to grab a gun. Well, let's just say if I were living in one of the handmade states, which I now call those states that have banned abortion, I would be stocking up on 
I would be finding as many wire cold hangers as if I you were did. living in, in, in Juliet. Unfortunately, <laughs> if you were living in Juliet and not in America. Well, I'm sure for some people it might feel like that. Yeah. It's interesting because Law and Order this week, the other I, last night I think, had an episode that actually took a Texas girl into New York. She was escorted into New York by an advocate to have an abortion. And of course she was pushed off a bridge and blah, blah, blah. But the advocate saw who killed her and was reluctant to testify because she lives in Texas and she knew that if she testified, she would be prosecuted when she went back to Texas. So, back. Right. so this is a really good, I mean, so law and order is actually grabbing some of these headlines and running with it. And you watch this show last night and it's, it's just, it's like another world. Because I, because I write rip from the headlines. That's books, your next story. <laughs> people compare them to law and order. The difference is it's much more of a deep dive. Oh yeah, than, well, than law, law and order, order than, only has an than hour. Law and order, they only have an hour. Yeah, and that gets back to our Perry Mason discussion. He gets the case, and tries the case, and solves the case yeah. in trial, in an hour. You can't um, do it any. It's like a CSI. Nobody works that fast. And, and why? And why I like why I like Goliath. By the way, the new one is uh, the Lincoln lawyer. Because you get one story and it stretches out over several episodes. And they uh, yeah. they just they just did a a similar uh, version of the Mickey Haller books, the Lincoln lawyer. Uh, what a, uh, Michael Conley's wonderful. I'm not shy about uh, praising other legal thriller authors. He's terrific. I can't shine his. It's shoes, one of my but... favorite venues, which is why you're on this show. But, <laughs> I but the idea, you know, it, he's way ahead of his time. If you think about. Yeah. Post COVID, we're all we're all working out of our houses now. He works out of his Lincoln. <laughs> That's why he's the Lincoln lawyer. It's just a marvelous concept. The yeah. show is good, but the books are terrific, and he's a good character. So they just did a a, a Netflix of Lincoln lawyer. After five, I was mourning the end of Goliath. And then all of a sudden, here's Lincoln lawyer. So yeah, there's always going to be I, another I got, one around the corner. I, I got an extra year out of the deal. Yeah, there's always a legal. Yeah, hopefully uh, there'll be a Zachary Blake. <laughs> hopefully there'll be a Zachary Blake. Oh, soon. let's hope so. So, what's next for you other than just finishing the screenplay and then figuring out how to get it made? Well, I've written eight eight novels. About no. the next book. I just wrote two children's books. Oh, really? The, the one came. One just came out. The other is coming out either in the during the holiday season or after the new year, depending on, I have a wonderful illustrator for my children's books. Her name is Belinda Faugust, and she's marvelous, and I won't release a book without her illustrating it, so I have to wait <laughs> for her wonderful illustrations before I can release a book. The book's written. In fact, I've written, yeah. I've written yeah. four or five children's books, but in order, I've got to wait for her to illustrate yeah, them. It. And it's she's got well. her own... And she writes her own books and, her, and does illustrations for others. She's hard to pin down. And she's worth um, the wait. She's worth the wait. Yeah. The first book is called Happy Jack, Sad Jack. It's a book about bullying. Oh, good. The second book is called One Thing or Two, Asher's Distra Distracted Adventure. It's about distracted driving. And my theory in my children's books is very simple. 
it's that we get these messages to kids too late in life. Mm. The books are written for, I would say, between four and eight-year-olds about issues that we tend to sell to kids as middle school or high school students. If you if you talk about bullying to someone who is in the sixth grade, I promise you that person's already a bully or not. Oh, by you, several years, yes. If you talk to somebody about put down your phone while you're driving, if you do that in driver's training, they're already addicted to their phones. They're not going to listen to you. Yeah. So my message in writing these books is these are very important safety issues that need to be delivered to kids at a much younger age. That's why I wrote those two children's books and the ones that will follow. Right now I'm working on a cozy mystery. That's a new genre for me. It has a legal slant, so I call it a cozy legal mystery. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I'll create a whole new genre. Yeah, well, hey, why not? And I also started (laughs) writing what I call a legal romance novel. Romance is a very popular genre, so I'm trying. I'm not sure I'm going to be successful, Yeah. but I'm trying to write a, a book that is heavy on romance but has a the legal component. I'm, I'm trying to be all things to all people. But I like my legal thrillers, I must admit. Yeah. Mark, this is wonderful. I have to thank you for coming on the show. May, may, I, may I mention one more thing? The one thing we didn't talk about is my latest Zachary Blake book is called You Have the Right to Remain Silent. Okay. It's a little different than the other ones. The other ones are all betrayal this, betrayal that. Yep. It's not about a social justice issue. It's simply a whodunit. So it's a little departure for me. It's won now three gold medals in different oh, cool. in different awards, in different award programs. So people like it, and it's well-reviewed, and uh, it's doing well. So, oh, that's uh, awesome. Th- that's my latest novel, uh, Zachary well, Blake a, novel. That's a great icing on the cake. Yeah, I do. <laughs> or on the, book, on the bookshelf. Well, thank you so much, Mark. It was so wonderful having you on the show. Thanks for having me, Debbie. It was, it was a pleasure to be here.